Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Hope you're enjoying summer. I'm excited about uh, Rick's open house. I'm not sure how we're all going to fit in the jacuzzi, but we'll make do, right? Um, I had the opportunity to go out to Utah a couple weeks ago, uh, meet with some friends, do some ministry as well. And as I was thinking about uh, the sermon today, as I was thinking about and the parables, uh, I was reminded of a, of a story and asked my friend to retell it for me. So I have a buddy who, who went out to Utah with his wife, and they planted a church there. And uh, one of the reasons they picked where they were was because there was not another Christian church around them in any direction for 100 miles. So highly, highly uh, Mormon community that they're in. Um, and so they were able to um, purchase uh, a home that they turned into a cafe and, and actually a coffee house across from the college, and it became a college ministry house. Uh, they were able to buy the property uh, that was next to that. And then in between was this other property, and they had to purchase it to get parking or something. Um, it wasn't really valuable, and there was this big uh, dilapidated barn on it that they would just end up having to tear down. Um, so they weren't excited about this, but it was a necessary thing they had to do. And so they talked with the property owner, and they finally got it down to about $9,000, which was way more than they wanted to spend, way more than their ministry had. But they, they saved, and they asked for help, and they got the money, and they bought the property. So then comes the, the, the task of going through this barn, um, throwing out stuff, burning stuff, actually, uh, which I don't understand growing up in California. Uh, I see movies where people you know, rake their leaves up, and then they, they burn them all. I guess people do that outside of California. We just take uh, giant trucks that go from house to house to pick them all up because that's more environmentally friendly, right? So when you clean something out, when you have these tasks, there's two kind of people. Um, There's the hoarders. Who's a hoarder here? I'm the hoarder. Everything is like precious, right? And my wife, Michelle, she's she's the chucker, right? She, She just wants to chuck everything out. Uh, so somewhere in there we find the balance. So my friend is actually a collector, and he collects um, uh, archaeological artifacts from Israel. He goes over there a lot, and he displays them in this coffee house uh, to show the, the great archaeological evidence that we have for the Bible, uh, compared with, you know, he's talking to Mormons, uh, where there's, there's no archaeological evidence. And so this is a great um, uh, conversation starter. So he's going through and he's trying to pick out stuff uh, in this barn, but he invites his dad to come down, and his dad is a chucker, right? So his dad's grabbing handfuls of stuff, and he's taking them out to this fire, and he's throwing them away, and my friend's trying to figure out what's going on. He sees uh, this large tin can, and there's some box in it or whatever, and he's taking it over to the fire, and he grabs it from him. He opens up the box, and inside the box are 70 $100 bills. So $7,000 now uh, that went back into the ministry. I thought that was a great story and and plays into what we're going to talk about today. Let me pray for our time as we begin today. God, um, we thank you for your word, uh, for the kingdom. Um, God, we pray that, that as we come to your word, as we worship you through our study today, that we would be transformed by it, that we would learn, but not just for learning's sake, God, that we would learn, that we would be changed in the image of your Son, that we would uh, have a better grasp of 
who you are, your character, your will for our lives, God. Let us walk out of here different people through your word. Amen. All right. We're going to be talking about the kingdom today, and um, we're in Matthew 13, so kind of keep that open. We're going to be moving around a little bit in there. And um, Matthew's account of Christ, it focuses on this aspect that Jesus is the, the Messiah, the King, uh, who's been promised throughout the Old Testament. And so Matthew's gospel is, is directed at the Jews, and so he uses this, this phrase, kingdom of heaven, right? The kingdom of God, kingdom of Christ. There's one kingdom. And so um, because of the reverential nature of God's name, Matthew uses kingdom of heaven, but they're interchangeable. Um, The message of Christ, the central message, was about the kingdom of God. And so why do I say that? The Gospels record that Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and praying the gospel of the kingdom, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so we see the kingdom and we see the gospel intertwined throughout Scripture. It's good news. And Jesus says in Luke that he was sent for the purpose that Jesus' purpose was preaching the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom? We're going to have a little background here, um, talk about the kingdom. Many will respond that the kingdom is, is essentially heaven. Catholics and some Protestants as well have said that, that the, the kingdom is equated with the church. Uh, Pietists, this movement within Lutherism in the late 17th century, uh, said that God's kingdom was connected to the moral, moral spiritual life of believers. Liberal Christianity uh, connects the kingdom of God to the social improvement, the social gospel. Um, and still others are awaiting this future kingdom for the Jews um, during a thousand reign of Christ on the earth. And so when we imagine a kingdom, we often think of, of castles and borders, right? We think of the magic kingdom or, or kingdoms and fairy tales or history. But the word kingdom, actually in the Hebrew, it's, it's this word malkuth in the Greek, basilia. And it, it, it's about the royal power, the dominion, the rule, and the reign of God. And so it's only secondarily referred to as, as this realm or place, this territory, over which the reign or the rule of God is being expressed, being exercised. The term kingdom And Scripture has this very dynamic, this active meaning. And it refers to the exercise of God's sovereignty and authority or power. So when when John the Baptist announces that the kingdom of God was at hand, he meant that God's reign and rule was about to break into the world through the Messiah. And when Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, he meant that through himself, God was exercising his authority and power to bring redemption to the world. So, when does this kingdom happen? Scripture promises the sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Christ. We understand this, right? The second coming of Christ. The final establishment of God's rule in the world. Uh, A couple uh, chapters forward, Matthew 25, 31 through 34 says, um, and flip over there real quick. It says, but when the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so we understand this inheritance, this future manifestation of the kingdom, this new creation of heaven and earth by Jesus who comes in glory as the king sitting on his rightful throne. And yet the New Testament also describes the kingdom as this this present spiritual reality, this thing that's happening right now. Paul says to the church in Rome that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so we understand this when we think of the fruit of the Spirit, that we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of that is righteousness and peace and joy. It's demonstrated in the lives of believers. And so it's happening right now. We read in Colossians 1 that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We also see the presence of the kingdom in verses like Matthew 12, 28 through 29. So turn back, uh, back to Matthew 12, where Jesus, he's accused of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And so he says to the Pharisees, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? So Jesus is making this case that Satan isn't going to cast out his own demons. He'd be fighting against himself, right? Jesus says that he has the power over Satan and the demons, because the kingdom of God, remember this, this rule, this reign of God has come. And so God's power enacted through the king of kings could deliver those who were demon-possessed. First John 3, 8 declares that the purpose of Christ's coming was, dis- was to destroy the works of the devil. And so the kingdom has arrived, and people are being delivered and healed and raised from the dead. God's kingdom's power and authority is present in Jesus in every word and every deed. So what's going on? The Bible says it's this future realm. We experience it now. It was brought in through Christ. It is appearing. So theologian George Ladd explains this. He says, Our central thesis is that the kingdom of God is the redemptive reign of God, dynamically active to establish His rule among human beings. And that this kingdom, which will appear as an apocalyptic act, basically with signs and wonders of the second coming, at the end of the age, has already come into human history in the person and mission of Jesus to overcome evil, to deliver people from its power, and to bring them into blessing of God's reign. The kingdom of God involves two great moments. This fulfillment within history, this is the already or the the now. And this consummation, this completion at the end of history, this is the not yet. And so, this similar idea of the now and the not yet, we understand this with regard to sanctification, right? Um, Our sanctification begins at regeneration, when we're born again, when we become Christians. We turn from our old life, put our trust in Christ. We're set apart and made holy, perfect in the eyes of God because of the perfect work of Christ. And yet, we still struggle against the flesh. Though we've been set free from sin, we don't always act like Christ. 
And so the promise is that sanctification will find completion for our souls in death and our bodies at the return of Christ. So we see that the kingdom is not yet. And so God's kingdom, this, this idea of heaven, right, eternal life, the future realm is the time and place where we will realize the full blessings of his kingdom, his reign, this perfect, complete reign of God. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this is our hope. This is our confidence in the promises of God, in Christ's return, in this completion and fulfillment of the kingdom. And this is our peace and our sanity in a world that, let's be honest, is revealing itself as as post-Christian in rebellion to God's rule over every aspect of our lives. So the Pew research, the research that looks at um, how religions are are, are claiming their their numbers and their, their identity um, this has been beginning to shift in the United States. Less people are self-identifying as Christian, and the number of knowns, this idea, known, N-O-N-E-S, is it rising. It's not necessarily atheism, but it's this religiously unaffiliated, right? They're, they're known. They're, they're affiliated with no church. And so I think this is probably a more accurate picture of what's going on in the United States. And it's probably been this way for a while. Um, this is definitely where it's going. We can't really be, uh, you know, some of the numbers are 70 to 80 percent Christian or this Christian nation, right, and be so easily swayed by the culture. It just doesn't make sense. So we just celebrated the 4th of July. I know that there were many who were really distraught um, at the celebration of our, of our country's freedom in light of recent court, uh, Supreme Court decisions. Both online and in person, um, sentiments of frustration and sadness for what had been lost were expressed. And it was a real moment of grief for many. And I love the freedom that we've enjoyed. It's a freedom that could only be established by this Judeo-Christian foundation of our forefathers. And how that will change moving forward is yet to be seen. But we have to remember that ultimately our hope is not in our nation, but it's in Christ, in the kingdom of God. And that doesn't mean that we give up. It doesn't mean that we retreat. We're still called to be salt and light, to destroy false arguments, to be Christ-like in how we love and how we serve. We're to impact the culture for Christ. It may be that our culture is changing, changing right before our eyes, or simply revealing what has been there all along. It's also true that the kingdom is now. And so remember, the kingdom is here as well. And so the blessing of God's reign and God's rule are to be received and enjoyed right now. And we pray your kingdom come, your will be done in our church, right? In our lives as it is in heaven. We're asking God to reign, that he would be king over the entire world, over this church, over our lives, so that he can accomplish his purpose. So we're in our summer series now called Parables and Poetry, and we'll be going through some of the Psalms. But right now, let's talk a little bit about parables. And parable is this combination of words, this para and bola, para meaning beside or alongside, and bola, this idea to cast or throw. And so to illuminate a spiritual truth, Jesus throws down alongside this this picture or this illustration to help us understand. And parables are this type of analogy, but they're not strictly analogy. It's a type of it. But it's been argued 
and I thought this was interesting, but I'm probably the only one, that, that it's the core of cognition. Um, analogy is the core of cognition. It plays the significant role in problem solving, in decision making, in our perception, memory, creativity, emotion, explanation, communication. It's at the root of this. There's actually this science called cognitive science and plays into things like facial recognition software. And so this is probably why analogy is used on SAT tests, right? And who just broke out into a little bit of a sweat when I said SAT, right? And we have, we have things like this where it says, hand is to mitten as foot is to... Good. Hey. All right. Now, now some of you guys are really sweating, right? And so <clears throat> these... There's, uh, we use analogy uh, as well in, in, we, in how we write. And so I, uh, a bunch of high school teachers uh, took what they thought were the worst analogies given by their students in, in, in essays, and they compiled them. They, there was a contest online, and they sent them in. And here's some of these really <laughs> bad analogies by high school students, okay? He says, her face was a perfect oval, like a circle that had its two sides gently compressed by a thigh master. <laughs> she grew on him like she was a colony of E. coli, and he was room temperature Canadian beef. <laughs> These are real analogies that students used in their papers, all right? Uh, John and Mary had never met. They were like two hummingbirds who had also never met. <laughs> uh, the lamp just sat there like an inanimate object. What else did you expect it to do? And finally, uh, the plan was simple, like my brother-in-law, Phil. But unlike Phil, this plan just might work. (laughs) All right. The difference between parable and analogy is that analogy is, you know, you make up this this analogy, you make up this story, and so all the details are going to match. Where parable is more this this more common, well-known life experience then is used to then further illustrate a story. And so not every detail is going to match up. We're not looking for truth in every detail. But Matthew 13 actually has seven parables, and they're all about the kingdom of heaven. All but the first one, the parable of the sower, they, they in fact begin with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then they go on to describe it. Uh, although... Um, the sower is also connected when Jesus explains it to the kingdom, and so all these parables. Um, so the first one we're going to talk about today is this idea of the parable of the buried treasure. And this is an actual picture from the Saddle Ridge Hoard. I don't know if anybody's heard about this, but this was uh, the largest known discovery of buried coins that had ever been recovered in the U.S. There was 1,427 gold coins found on a rural property in Sierra Nevada, California, and this was only a few years ago, 2013. The coins were were found in eight rusted metal cans, and the face value of the coins was $27,460. Because many of the coins were uncirculated, were like this near mint, and and most of them actually became the most, what they call, what they say, the finest known specimen. It's it's the best coin they've ever seen or or collected of this. Um, The Saddle Ridge Hoard has been assessed at a value of $10 $10 million. Not bad for walking around your property, kicking over a little can and finding this in it, right? 
It included an 1866 $20 double eagle coin that was valued by itself at $1 million. Pretty amazing. And so we love these stories of buried, buried treasure, right? Who's ever, who's ever taken something in their house and you hide it somewhere? Like it's a present for your kids or your wife or something, or, or it's just something valuable and you're like, I'm going on vacation, I'm going to put it somewhere safe, right? And you put it somewhere and then you have no idea where it is, right? I've done this. I hate that. So those of us that aren't in the habit of buying, uh, burying our valuables, this can seem strange, right? But nevertheless, it happens. And I wonder in each of these cases, the, the case with my friend's story and, um, you know, even this, this uh, Sierra, uh, Saddle Ridge hoard, I mean, what is the story here? Was it stolen? Did they not trust the bank? Maybe they were keeping it from their spouse, right? Did they f- just forget about it? Or did they put it there and then they died? I mean, this happens. So Jesus tells a similar story about maybe a day worker who discovers a treasure in the field that he is working. And it's interesting. Um, my friend and, and both, you know, in the, in the account of this, this Saddle Ridge hoard, uh, there's a lot of anonymity, right? They don't want everybody knowing who they are and how it all happened because they're afraid that people are going to come and try and make a claim on it, Right? So he covers it back up, goes home, and uh, to guarantee the treasure would be secure, the worker sells everything he has to buy the field. The next parable is the, the parable of the pearl of great price. And I think that anyone who's a collector uh, understands this parable well. I don't know much about pearls, uh, but there was a time when I would go to garage sales and estate sales. And uh, if I, especially if I thought there might be some comic books there, right? I'm a comic book guy. And so I'd be hoping there'd be some gem hiding in a cardboard box, you know, wrapped in plastic. And you hear these stories. You hear them a lot. These, you know, some mom cleans out her attic or a basement, right? And she just puts all the, you know, this kid's comic books uh, for sale. And someone sweeps them up and they're worth all kinds of money. Uh, I'm a Spider-Man guy. So amazing fantasy. Um, Number 15, the first story of Spider-Man, right, is now worth in near-mint condition $425,000, right? You can see that it was, it was 12 cents at the time of printing. Uh, this one's for Norm. He's a Batman fan. And so Detective Comics, uh, number 27, is the, the first um, Batman story. $2,850,000, for a near-mint condition. And the most valued copy to date is the first appearance of Superman in Action Comics number one, $5,300,000 for a comic book. All right. Uh, Next, we're going to talk about the the parable of the dragnet, right? And, oh wait, wrong picture. So, no one under, if you guys don't get, anyone under 40 doesn't get that, that reference, right? Yeah, you can Google it later. Later, later. All right, okay. All right, the kingdom of God, this idea that can cause us to react in a couple different ways. As Christians, we long for Christ's return, and we should. The consummation of the kingdom will be this this glorious event. And some of us are weary and sick, and we're missing brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us. And when Christ comes again, there will be this finality and restoration for those of us and all of creation. But with Christ's return also comes judgment. 
And this is what this parable talks about. Like the parable of the wheat and tares, it brings out this reality of hell for those around us who will be cast out of the kingdom. These will be friends and neighbors, co-workers, and strangers. And so we should also react with gratitude and with urgency. And gratitude that the net was not drawn to shore before we had the chance to know and trust in Christ. Thank you, God. And urgency for those who are in rebellion to God's rule over their lives. And finally, the the end of our our passage today, verse 52, says that, that as disciples of the kingdom, we're to be teachers and instructors of those we disciple in Christ. And so, in light of these mysteries that are revealed about the kingdom by Jesus through the parables, it doesn't mean that, that we're just to get rid of um, the truths found in the Old Testament. They're not to be thrown out. In fact, a lot of them are, are were misunderstood and are, and are about the second coming of Christ, right? The kingdom yet to come. And so, what does this mean for us, right? We can go and we can learn this stuff, but how do we apply this to our life? What is the meaning of these parables on our life. One is that the kingdom is unexpected. And so the Jews were expecting the Messiah to usher in the kingdom of God with, with this political, uh, this visible military power. But the parable of the sower shows us the kingdom is a spiritual realm that comes by preaching the gospel. And it works in the heart of man. It's not forced, but it's received. And so the scribes expected that when the kingdom would come, the wicked would be no more. But the parable of the tares and wheat shows that the kingdom is already at work in the world. Those who have received the gospel of Christ and those who reject it will live together until the final judgment. And I think that matters for us, um, you know, when we see wickedness around us and when we, we think of these ideas of, of law and, and, and working towards law. And we know that law doesn't change hearts, but it, but it restricts evil, Right? And that's a good thing. That's a blessing, a, a, a common grace. We see in the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven that, that Jesus, again, he defies expectations of a kingdom that's going to come in big and bold, but instead shows the kingdom will come through the one who's meek and lowly, arriving as a baby, living as a carpenter, through a handful of disciples, and, and this ministry that ends abruptly like a tiny mustard seed that will grow into a tall tree, or a small amount of leaven that will infiltrate and permeate the entire bowl of dough. The kingdom of heaven will one day be spread from Nazareth, right? And nobody thought that anything good could come out of Nazareth to the whole world. And so Jesus says the kingdom is like when you're walking your dog and you kick over a can, a rusted can, or you're throwing out junk in the back of your barn, or you find this buried treasure, right? The God, this is the gospel of grace. That the creator of everything would die for your sins 2,000 years ago because you knew you were a sinner. And the only way you could be saved was for him to live out perfect holiness and die because of the wrath of God that you earned. And this is offered as a free gift to those who receive it by faith. The kingdom brings overwhelming joy. And can you imagine... The merchant who, who's constantly searching and surveying and appraising and inspecting, right, these, these jewels, these pearls, and yet he finds this unique specimen, this beautiful pearl that, that outshines his entire collection, that he would sell his entire collection to get that one pearl. Jesus tells us that the man who f- 
finds the hidden treasure is motivated. He's driven by joy at his revelation. And so it's out of this joy that comes the sacrifice. It's this joy that allows us to overcome the obstacles and persecutions in our life, to love and serve and reflect Christ, to be bold. And joy should be our motivation to know the gospel, to share the gospel, to defend the gospel, and to live the gospel. And so the kingdom is worth your all. Jesus isn't saying that you can earn the kingdom by your thoroughness or your commitment. We know that there's no way we can earn God's grace or salvation. But remember, the kingdom of God is about this rule, this kingship, this authority. Jesus tells us that we're to receive the kingdom of God as little children. What are we receiving? Are we receiving heaven? Not really. The church? No. We're receiving God's rule and authority over our lives. And so can we do that in part? Can we do that halfway? 95%, 99% even? Are we really giving ourselves in perfect trust to God's rule here and now? Are we truly under God's kingship? Or are we still under ours in some way? He says we're to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We're to seek first God's righteousness, his reign in and over our lives, first and foremost. And that means repentance, a change of mind, turning from the path of me to the path of God. It means commitment and faith this idea of trust, that God's ways are what repairs, that God's ways are what restores, flourishes, that God brings abundant life now and forever. Paul tells the church in Philippi, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as but rubbish, as dung, so that I may gain Christ. So Paul's reputation, his identity, his livelihood, the honor and prestige that came along with that was dung, was refuse compared to knowing Christ, giving his all for his king. And so we say that we love Jesus, that we're great for the gospel, or do we just like the perks, right? Do we like the promises and the good stuff of God, the eternal location? And those are awesome things. Those are great things. But are we overwhelmed by the beauty of knowing Christ? Do we see him as the true king of our lives? Do we trust him to make everything right? Do we delight in the kingdom like we would delight in finding a buried treasure? And so Rick talked last week about this idea of the the $3 worth of God, this poem. And uh, I'd never heard of it before, but I looked it up. And is that what we want? Do we want just enough to make us feel good? Or do we want enough to be transformed, to be changed? But giving our all, is the kingdom of God expensive? I guess it depends. Is $500 expensive? Is it? Is $500 expensive? It is. Anybody else saying it's not? It depends. Yeah, there you go. It depends. It depends on what you're buying, right? So who are my car guys here? Who are my car guys? Who has a dream, dream car? Come on, come on, come on. What's your dream car? What's that? Okay, I didn't hear yours, sorry. Oh, Lamborghini, sorry, I can't hear. All right, Lamborghini, right? Fast, beautiful car, right? Expensive. 
So if I told you for $500, you could have a spark plug to a Lamborghini, you'd probably be overpaying, right? But if I told you the keys to a Lamborghini or the pink slip to a Lamborghini, we're in here for $500, that I'd sell you a Lamborghini for $500, you'd say, well, I don't have $500, but I'll figure it out, right? I'll go home, I'll beg, I'll borrow, do whatever it takes. That's a great deal. So is the kingdom of God expensive? No. It's the best deal around. Let me pray. God, we uh, thank you for today, for your word. Um, God, I pray that as we contemplate your word throughout this week, uh, today, as we think about, God, all the goodness that comes from uh, your kingdom that is, that is only in part today, um, God, that we would think about our lives, that we would reflect on, on how we see that kingdom and what it means to us, what your gospel means to us, God, what you mean to us in our lives. And so, um, God, we love you so much. Uh, you've given so much. And so we want to give that back. We love you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.